This episode of Commute is brought to you in part by Hungry for Humans, the latest board game from Lonely Hero Games. Hungry for Humans is a fun, fast-paced, take-that-style game for two to five players, where humans must feed their monsters the best food they can to avoid being eaten themselves. The game features real dishes from West Virginia restaurants where the creators are from, as well as local cryptids such as the Mothman and Flatwoods Monster. Hungry for Humans is available for pre-order on Kickstarter now, so head to kickstarter.com and search Hungry for Humans or follow the link in the show notes of today's episode. Hungry for Humans, the latest exciting game from Lonely Hero Games. You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we're about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you just might find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be the most interesting person in the room. On this edition of Commute. Although World War II officially ended in 1945, it raged on for one man until the mid-1970s. We'll tell the bizarre story of Hiro Onada, the man who refused to surrender. Ever had a song just run through your head constantly? Of course you have! We explore the powerful psychology behind jingles. If you're like many Americans, you get your Halloween costume at a shop that is here one day and gone the next. But where do those shops come from and where do they go the rest of the year? I create my Halloween costumes, I'll tell you that much. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, I'm really excited for this first segment that you're going to do because I'm going to be honest, I have no idea about this story. I've never heard about this story before, but I will say on the front end, I'm getting some vibes of the old guy that just won't let things go. I I think this is maybe the ultimate old guy that just won't let things go. Yeah, have you ever it's like held a back a, in my day, but but back in my day when we were at war. <laughs> have you have you ever held a grudge for thirty years and given up your whole life? Well, we're gonna tell you about a guy who did. And so in August of nineteen forty five, Japan officially surrendered to the Allied powers, bringing World War II to a close. But not for everyone. For one man, Hiro Onada, the war continued for nearly three decades. Onada was an intelligence officer who enlisted in the Japanese Army when he was 18, and on December 26, 1944, he was sent to the Lubang Island in the Philippines and was ordered to hamper enemy attacks on the island by any means necessary. He was given strict orders that under no circumstances should he surrender or take his own life. By February of 1945, the U.S. had all but taken the island, and all Japanese soldiers except Onada and three others had died or surrendered. So Onada ordered his men to take to the hills to engage in hit-and-run attacks with U.S. forces and local police. Now, by August, the war had ended, but Onada and his men didn't know this and continued to roam the jungle, looking to reclaim the island. And in October, planes dropped leaflets into the jungle that stated the war had ended and ordered Anada and his men to come down from the mountains. 
but they distrusted these leaflets, believing that it was propaganda, a trap that would force them into a surrender. So the years drug on, and the group continued engaging in local skirmishes with police and locals. And by this point, Dave, like Allied forces were long gone from the island. The war had been over for years. So in 1949, the first soldier of the four walked away, spent six months on his own, and then surrendered in 1950. Four years later, in 1954, another soldier was killed, and then another in 1972. And so at this point, Onada was alone. And in the jungle, he continued fighting through the 1970s and became a local legend that approached myth status on the island. The man in the woods still fighting a war that had ended over 20 years ago. By this point, the U.S. had entered an entirely different war in Vietnam. So Onada was really engaging with local farmers and police, not allied forces. So to understand this, Dave, you have to understand some important cultural context. In Japanese culture, which dates back centuries, the ancient samurai code of Bushido drove much of war policy and honor. Samurai who defended medieval feudal Japan refused to surrender under any circumstances, and the code stated that suicide was preferable to the dishonor of being a prisoner. So you fast forward to the 1940s, and being taken prisoner in Japanese culture during war meant that you would dishonor your family and you would be treated as a social outcast. And there are actually countless horror stories from the war that detail even Japanese civilians committing suicide in droves as U.S. troops approached their villages. So many in Japan were just trapped by this ancient cultural expectation of no surrender. So back to Onada. Enter a Japanese explorer and adventurer named Norio Suzuki. Suzuki became interested in locating Anada and went into the jungle in 1974. So Suzuki actually succeeded and found Anada, and he was still wearing the same military uniform from the 1940s. <laughs> it was just like all shredded up, but the same uniform. And he did actually like establish kind of a friendship with Anada. But even then, he could not convince him to surrender. But he did come back with a key piece of information from his time spent with Anada. Anada was driven by the concept that he could only be ordered to stand down by one man, his commanding officer from the war so many years before. So the search began for Onada's commanding officer, a man named Yoshimi Taniguchi, who was now an aging man working in a bookstore. The Japanese government actually picked up and flew Taniguchi to Lubang Island and located Anada. And on March 9, 1974, Anada handed over his rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, several hand grenades, and a dagger given to him by his mother in 1944 to use to kill himself if he was captured. He was actually pardoned for the several people he and his men had killed over the nearly 30-year affair by the president of the Philippines. And now the man who found Anada would keep hunting for elusive beings and would actually go on to die in 1986 in an avalanche while looking for the Yeti. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Yeah, it's really out of left field. 
Now, when Onoda returned to Japan, he was actually hailed a hero and attained a nearly celebrity status. He refused a huge sum of back pay from the Japanese government and released a memoir. He moved to Brazil to farm in 1975 and then returned to Japan in 1984 and established an educational survival camp for young people. Now, Anata has never apologized or shown remorse for the nearly 30 Filipino citizens who died at the hand of his unit or for destroying the crops and farms of countless others. Anata did die of heart failure in January of 2014 at 91 years old and for the most part has been remembered and portrayed in a very positive light in Japan. But his story is a really complicated one, full of influence from war, culture, and really where our motivations to do something really come from. So two things. Number one, who was he fighting for all those years? Like, was he just slashing at bushes? Well, was he... so you have to remember that the, the Filipinos were on the side of the Americans during the war, right? And so the Japanese had taken the Philippines. So Filipino soldiers would fight the Japanese during the war. So he believed that by kind of like coming down into the village and attacking the village that he was, in effect, fighting the war. Still, but in like 1970, when people were watching TV and just like on vacation, he's trying to fight them dressed up in in, uh, guerrilla warfare. Number two, this is why texting is so revolutionary. I, I can see the text messages that would come in if this happened today. Bro, the war's over, LOL. Seriously? LOL? Yeah, dude, LOL. Okay, LOL. Jay, we've all been there. Right. Maybe it's the middle of the workday. Maybe you're sitting in traffic. Or maybe you're out for a jog in your neighborhood. Regardless of the situation, you're minding your own business and then... All of a sudden, without a fair warning, a little voice in your head goes, Five dollar, five dollar, five dollar foot long. Yes, Jay, the jingle famously from the fast food chain Subway has done its annoying yet profoundly effective job. It's now in your head. So what do you say, Jay, we play a little game? We've never done anything like this before on the show. I'm going to sing some jingles and take out the name of the company, and we're going to see if you can guess the company, just to show how powerful these jingles are. I'm going to bet that you can get every single one of these. Okay? Yeah, Don't e- let me down. Either that'll happen, or I'll look like a total idiot live on the well, air. We're about to find out. A lot of pressure here. All right, here we go. Ba-da-da-da-da. I'm loving it. A McDonald's. Okay, easy. McDonald's, yep. Like a good neighbor. Okay, State Farm. I'm an Aaron Rodgers fan. That one's easy. Is on your side. Nationwide. The best part of waking up is... Well, it, it's Folgers, but I would disagree because Folgers is uh, stock way down on Folgers. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not asking you to agree with them. Just okay, like, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Every kiss begins with... K. What would you do for a... Klondike bar. Got him. Yeah. Jay, killing the game. Yes, Jay, jingles get into your head and they do not leave as you just showcased. And interestingly enough, this topic came to me by way of commute listener and friend of the show, Kalina Burgess. She and I were laughing about an Instagram meme talking about how the J.G. Wentworth theme song called J.G. Wentworth 877 Cash Now gets stuck in your head. 
and she told me that the father of the lead singer of her favorite band, a band called Pine Grove, actually wrote that famous jingle. What a small world. There's a reason we still hear jingles, new and old today. Jingles have been around since the invention of commercial radio in the 1920s, but it was on Christmas Eve 1926 that the modern commercial jingle was born. A Wheaties quartet sang out a song that showered love upon the General Mills cereal by the same name, Wheaties. General Mills execs were actually about to discontinue Wheaties due to sluggish sales when they noticed a spike in profits in the geographic regions where the jingle was played. They decided to go all in, and they made the jingle a central part of their next national advertising campaign. And nearly nine decades later, Jay, being on a Wheaties box is the pinnacle of athletic achievement, and Wheaties are a thriving part of the breakfast aisle at your local supermarket. Jingles became even more a part of the American advertising scene in the decades that followed Wheaties. In the 1930s, there were actually strict advertising rules on radio commercials that banned direct advertising during primetime listening hours. Jingles, however, were not part of this rule and thus became a clever workaround. You could sing about your love of a product without explicitly asking people to purchase anything. So what's the science behind the effectiveness of the jingle? Well, jingles are written to be as memorable as nursery rhymes. Tim Faulkner for HowStuffWorks.com writes, The shorter the better, the more repetition the better, the more rhymes the better. If you're being indecisive in the deodorant aisle and you suddenly hear a voice in your head singing, By Menon, you might drop a speed stick manufactured by Menon into your basket without a second thought. So because of this, jingles are designed to infiltrate your memory. Over the years, psychologists and neurologists have studied in great detail the effects that music can have on our brains, concluding that music has the unique ability to emotionally connect our brains to a product, making the song and the product difficult to forget about. This connection is commonly referred to as an earworm, An earworm is an easy-to-remember musical hook that connects the song to our working memory in our brains, making it part of our everyday thought patterns. Unfortunately, Jay, for the traditional jingle, the same earworm connection is found in many pop songs, which have started to slowly replace the jingle over the past couple of decades. In fact, a marketing professor from the University of Cincinnati named James Calaris conducted some serious surveying to see what songs get stuck in your head most often. And Jay, only two jingles appeared on his list. The Kit Kat song, Break Me Off a Piece of That Kit Kat Bar, and the Chili's, I Want My Baby Back, Baby Back, Baby Back, Baby Back Ribs jingle, which coincidentally has been named the catchiest jingle of all time by many publications. The licensing of pop music for commercials, starting in 1987, actually, when the Beatles' song Revolution was used in a Nike shoe campaign, has all but done away with new jingles. I mean, why ask for a customer to relate to your jingle when they'd prefer for the Rolling Stones or Coldplay to be associated with their product of choice? There is, though, Jay, one final frontier where jingles thrive. One space where paying to write a jingle is possible and paying to license a nationally recognized pop song is typically not. 
Local advertising. Yes, Jay, local advertisers still often rely on jingles to build that connection with their customer base. And remember, no one ever said that jingles had to be good. Like a few local ones from the area that we live in that get stuck in our head, including one that we both strongly dislike. I already know what you're going to say. I already know what you're going to say. Go, Goldie. So, Dave, what do you think about Halloween? Are you a fan of it? Like, where does it rank among holidays for you? Well, Halloween's coming up, um, so this is very timely. And we have talked about Halloween on this podcast before. A previous episode explored uh, the myth of whether or not Halloween candy actually gets tampered with. And I kind of have a mixed bag on Halloween, honestly. Uh, one of my best friends died on Halloween when I was a freshman in college, so there's, there's that negative part of the holiday but i have had some good times dressing up and the older i get the the sillier the costume uh, i like to make and create so you know it's a mixed bag for me so in the nearly nine billion dollar industry that is the american halloween experience there is no bigger name than the nomadic store spirit halloween Spirit Halloween sells costumes, spooky decor, and just about anything you didn't know you even needed to celebrate Halloween. And whether or not you realize it, there's probably one in your hometown right now if you are listening during the month of October. So these stores pop up in abandoned buildings around the country for only a short window from August to early November, and then they seemingly vanish overnight only to appear again next year like clockwork. So these stores actually kind of fill a gap in American consumerism because they move into a space that can range anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 square feet of space. In the company's own words, no store is too large or too small. They just basically cram all of the merchandise into whatever space they have. Now, most of the time, Spirit Halloweens move into abandoned buildings once occupied by businesses that have filed for bankruptcy. So essentially, Spirit Halloween stores only work at the expense of other stores. Without a pre-built empty space, a Spirit Halloween store cannot exist. So landlords who may have difficulty selling a space, they may choose to rent to Spirit Halloween for a short window of time to bring in money and drive traffic to the space. Abandoned stores and malls are also hot spots that get rented out. So Spirit Halloween provides all the merchandise, all the cash registers, and removes all unsold merch at the conclusion of the season. All employees are seasonal hires, and most unsold merch can just be stored and put back on the floor next year. So really from January to August, the company spends time searching high and low across the country to identify these spaces. The spaces are often open because when a major business moves out of a large space that costs a lot of upfront money to develop, it is extremely difficult to find a new tenant if that business goes under. As it stands right now, our free market can't really figure out how to properly use large abandoned spaces. And until we do, Spirit Halloween will take full advantage. So how do these stores succeed over the rise of online retailers, though? Well, Dave, it comes down to this. 
Pop-up stores offer an experience. You get to try on the costumes, browse through your options, cycle through different choices. And procrastination is also a factor here. Most people wait until just a few days before Halloween to pick out a costume. And the overwhelming options makes going to an in-person store much more effective. And since the average American spends upward of around $100 on Halloween every year, the market's there. But the moving target of the season means that some unconventional means have to kind of meet us where we are. And Jay, I think this has a pretty obvious connection to something else we've talked about on Commute. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to episode 24, Band in a Bubble, Space Jam is Back, Is That Okay?, and Selling Fireworks. So we talked to a buddy of mine who worked in a fireworks booth for the 4th of July, which is a very temporary thing, same kind of deal. They don't move into, uh, I guess, abandoned warehouses or empty store space. They just set up in empty lots. They appear... And as quickly as they appear, they vanish. It's almost like there's a, it, they're a puppet. All the employees are puppets, and the puppeteer is never seen. So like Mr. Spirit of Halloween, the man who sits in the ivory tower, who has any idea who that is? Yeah, the man behind the curtain is just going to be a mystery. But, you know, it, but that's the way it has to be, right? Like with fireworks, with Halloween, like, because they're seasonal. You can't have a successful Halloween store that opens all year round and sustain your business, right? This is the way it has to be. So I looked it up, and it looks like uh, Spirit of Halloween is actually owned by Spencer Gifts, which makes tons of sense. Man, I wasn't allowed to go into Spencer Gifts as a youth because of all of the uh, you know explicit uh, content inside, so you'll have to maybe fill in the missing information for me. All I'll say is this, and anyone who's been in a Spencer Gifts, especially people who have worked in a mall, will know exactly what I'm talking about. Spencer Gifts had a very distinct smell. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll enter someone's house or I'll go into a store and I'll be reminded, something will remind me of the smell of Spencer Gifts and I'll just feel very grimy. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Cobb. We'll see you next week. The one from the town that I grew up in was for a guy. He was a, a uh, I think you called a podiatrist, the guy who worked on your feet. His name was Dr. Feathers. And uh, his theme song was, <laughs> When you think of feet, you think of feathers. Dr. Feathers, the foot specialist. <laughs>